Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. So let's read from Romans 11. I ask then, did God reject His people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly did they not obtain? The elect among them, the elect among them did, but the others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If part of the dough offered as, fruit, as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, has been, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved." As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. 
As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts are his, are his call and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now have become disobedient in order that they, may, they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Amen. Thank you, Lockie. It's nice and loud. Good morning, everyone. I've got a question for you this morning. Are you awake? Yes. Are you alive? Yes. Good. I asked that for a couple of reasons. First of all, our coffee cart's not here today, as Lockie mentioned. Uh, we're blessing the Prezies down the road. They couldn't find a coffee cart that was affordable for their launch, and so we thought we'd bless them with... Uh, the Christian drug of coffee this morning. Um, one of our DNA points has always been that we want to be a generous church, a kingdom-minded church, and we need more churches in our region, so we want to work together with churches that are starting. So there's no coffee cup. But the second reason I asked you the question today is that today is probably going to be one of the heaviest uh, content-driven sermons I've ever preached. And so I'm going to talk really fast today. There'll be less illustrations. I'm going to talk fast. You're going to have to listen hard if you're going to keep up. But if you do, I hope that God will speak to us through his word this morning. And so before we start, let me just bow our heads and we're going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active, that it transforms our hearts and lives. And as we open up your word today in Romans 11, Lord, I pray that we'd have open hearts and open minds, that you would speak to us. And I pray that the end result is that we would be more like you as a result of gathering today, and we'd be more passionate for mission in this community to reach people that are precious to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd challenge us today, you'd encourage us today, you'd convict us if necessary, and you'd help us to follow you even more closely. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think I see my Auntie Heather here today. She's down at the Hub, and uh, she gets a mention at the start of the sermon, because a lot of my early childhood memories happened at Auntie Heather and Uncle Andrew's suburban house, slash farm in Mentone. We didn't need my inner farm back then because Heather and Andrew had all sorts of creatures. In fact, I think it wouldn't be too far of a stretch to call Heather the crazy cat lady back then because uh, she had about half a dozen of her own cats and she lived next to Moorabbin Airport as well. And so a lot of wild cats would breed there and then they'd wander into the yard and they'd be adopted as their own and they became part of what you know, was pretty much cat world in, in Mentone. But it wasn't just cats. Um, it was all sorts of creatures. They've, over the years, had dogs that are bigger than horses. They've had giant birds that are a little bit like pterodactyls. So when you go in the, um, you know, the front door of their house, you get attacked like something from the Jurassic era is coming to eat you. Um, they've had chooks and snakes and more dogs and more cats. I remember Mishka, uh, probably my favourite dog they had, was a, a long-haired black Belgian shepherd. And it was a beautiful dog. And when it died, they replaced it with Cuda, which was very similar but not quite as smart. And I remember lots of things about their house as I was growing up. I remember playing in the backyard. I remember climbing over the boat that was there. I remember their garage with the painted floors. And I remember the intense table tennis battles at their house. But one of the most distinct things I remember about their house in Mentone is a poster with chooks on it. I think it had chooks on it. It was on the back of their toilet door. And perhaps I spent too much time in there. I'm not sure. But I've never forgotten this poster. And it was these chooks. And the title of it was... Nobody did what anybody could have done. And there was a little story on that poster. And this is the story. It said, this is a story about four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. 
Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realised that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. It's a clever little story which highlights that no one really took responsibility, so nothing got accomplished. And so why do I tell you this story? Well, today we are in our Roman series, and we get to the end of a three-part mini-series in the middle of the letter to the Romans in chapters 9 to 11. And this is a highly debated passage of Scripture. A lot of people have different views on this particular passage. Everyone has an opinion on the chapters, particularly as it relates to Israel, and it often boils down to your understanding of eschatology, which is end times theology, the theology of when Jesus is going to return. And so the danger, which I highlighted in week one of our mini-series, is if we get so caught up in what is essentially important, but also highly complex and secondary matters, we could easily fall for the trap of everybody arguing with somebody, but nobody doing what anybody can do and what everybody is meant to do, and that's to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a world that desperately needs to hear about him. So as I said, these are issues to debate over, but they are certainly not issues to be distracted by and absolutely not issues to be divided by. Having said that, I'm going to go a little bit deeper today, and I'm going to start by looking um, at some of that end-time theology I just spoke about, because I think it's important to understand where I'll land in chapter 11 of Romans. There are lots of different views about Jesus' return. And there are many different views, but there are two really main views. They are premillennialism and amillennialism. I'm going to call them pre-mill and amill because it's less of a mouthful. And I'll need less water. Premillennial view is that they look at the, the second coming of Christ and the next great event in salvation history in this view is the rapture. Now the rapture is the second coming of Christ, um, part of it. Um, in the pre-mill view, they see it happening in two stages. So there's a, a secret stage. And then there's a public stage that comes much later. And so the rapture is a secret stage of Jesus' second coming. And it's when he comes back and he meets uh, the church in the sky and he raptures them from earth to heaven. You may have seen bumper stickers on cars over the years that say, Warning, in account or in, on the case of rapture, this vehicle will be unaccompanied. Now that's not very good for road safety. It's a little bit scary thinking that could happen at any second. But if you ever see a car cruising along the freeway with nobody driving it, you'll know what has happened. And at that point, you should be very concerned that you're still here. <laughs> Premillennialists believe after the rapture, there's a period of great tribulation for those that are left on earth. And then after that period, Jesus will return again to earth. This time it won't be secret. And it will commence a literal 1,000-year golden age of peace on earth. And after that, we'll be ushered into a new heavens and earth. Now, the premill view is not always, but often put together with dispensationalism. This is a view that sprung up in the 1800s by a guy called Darby, and it views God working in different dispensations or eras throughout history, and in each of these eras, God has different and distinct principles that he operates and governs by. This view sees a very deliberate distinction between Israel, the nation, and the church, God has promises that are only for Israel, and then he's got these other promises for the church, and this is obviously very relevant for Romans chapter 11. Many experts in this belief refer to the church as an interruption to God's great plan for Israel, and so they need to be removed from the earth at the rapture so that these promises can resume for the physical nation of Israel. And so if you talk to someone who's a dispensationalist or a lot of people with a pre-mill view, they will often say, look to Israel. 
Because what happens in the Middle East today is a sign of biblical prophecy and all the action is going to happen there. Now, depending on how far you go in the pre-mill dispensationalist view, some people within that view, view believe that all physical Jewish people um, will be saved, or at the very least, many of them will come back to the Lord in the end days. The temple will be rebuilt, the land will be restored, and some even believe that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament will be reinstated. There are many variances in this view, and you can be pre-mill, but also be pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, depending on when you think the tribulation is going to happen, but that's all too much to go into today, so Google it when you get home. I've got to say, I know lots of people that I really respect, preachers, theologians, uh, even people in this room who hold to some variants of this particular view, and that's completely acceptable. These are secondary issues when it comes to salvation. It's important to understand what you believe, but that is uh, you know, an acceptable and orthodox view. However, I also know equally as many who do not hold to these views, and I'm going to post my flag to the mast today and say that I'm not a premillennialist, and I'm not, uh, I certainly don't hold a dispensationalist view. My understanding of the end times is more in line with the second main view, which is called amillennialism. Have I lost you yet? No, good. Okay, so we're living in the church age. This is what amillennialists believe. And as we get closer to Jesus' return, things will get progressively worse. Trials and tribulations will increase. And then Jesus will return to judge the living and the end. So in the amill view, they read the apocalyptic language of key prophecies in places such as Revelation and also Daniel as less literal and more symbolic. For example, the 1,000-year millennium reign um, in Revelation, amillennials will see that as symbolic of a large period of time, kind of like when Scripture talks about God owning the cattle on a 1,000 hills. We don't believe there's a 1,000 hills somewhere that belong to God with some cattle on it. We believe it actually means God has unlimited resource. The same when it says that a day for God a day is like a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years is like a day. We don't believe that a day is actually a 1,000 years, although some days feel like it, right? And so we see it very much, Amil people see it more symbolic. And so an Amil view holds the understanding that the millennium is happening now, that Jesus is reigning in heaven at the right hand of God, that Satan has been bound so that the gospel is going to all the earth as it is today. And through Jesus' ministry, the kingdom of God broke into human history and is a now and not yet kingdom where we see glimpses of a future reality in the present and it will be made perfect when Christ returns at the second coming. In the meantime, there's a mix of good and bad in our world. And when Jesus comes back, he will judge the righteous and the unrighteous, which lines up with Jesus' teaching in the parable of the wheat and the tares. And so a person with an view generally won't say, look to Israel. They'll say, look to Jesus, because they believe all the promises made to Israel have been inherited by Christ. And they are accessed by all people through putting our faith in him. And so the next big ticket item in salvation history for people with an amiel view is the second coming of Christ. And the, um, the rapture is the same as the resurrection. And then at that point, we'll be ushered into a new heavens and a new earth. And so this is a very simplistic overview of the two main views, but it's important to understand them because the filter you use to view Scripture will become your interpretive grid when it comes to passages such as Romans 11. So if you have a pre-mill dispensationalist view, you will view Israel, the nation, very differently um, than if you have an amillennial view. And so you need to view Scripture, um, come to your own convictions from Scripture on that particular issue. My view uh, is that the physical nation of Israel is important, as all nations on earth are important and precious to God, but that they are no more significant than any other nation on earth. And I believe that because I think Paul has taught consistently in Romans and other parts of Scripture that there is no longer Jew or Gentile. To be a Jew is not one to be one outwardly, but it's to be one inwardly through faith in Christ. It's not about physical circumcision, thankfully, 
but circumcision of the heart through the Spirit which is given in Christ. He tells us that God shows no favoritism. In Ephesians chapter 2, he tells us that Jesus came to make two groups one humanity. And together, Jew and Gentile, we become a holy temple in the Lord, built on the apostles and prophets with the chief cornerstone that holds it all together being Christ himself. In Romans 4, he told us it's not by the law that we obtain the promises of God, but by faith. And in this way, we are all Abraham's offspring. As the Lord promised, you will be a father of many nations. And then last week in Romans chapter 9, Paul explains all this by showing that not all Israel is actually Israel. It's not about physical descent, but rather about being people of the promise accessed by faith in Christ. And so I explained last week from Scripture the idea of God having representatives on earth, people that he, as the king of the universe, gives authority to, to rule and reign on earth and to live out his mission to all people. As we do that, we're called to represent his character. And so I mentioned last week Adam being the first human being ever created. Adam was placed in Eden and he was given a special place called the Garden of Eden where he dwelt with God. In that place, God gave him great promises and a great mission to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. All this was conditional on his obedience to the command that God gave him not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Now, Adam disobeyed that one command and was expelled from the garden as a punishment for disobedience. And so the mission given to Adam was then passed to Abram, who was another person chosen by God as part of his plan to have a people that would represent him. Abram was also given great promises. God said to him, I will make your name great. I will make you into a great nation. That's Israel. He was also given great promises. Sorry, he was also given a special place where God would dwell with them. That's called the promised land. He was also given a great mission that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Once again, this is all conditional on the obedience to God's command. We know it as the law or the Ten Commandments. And God said to his people, you will dwell safely in the land if, if you obey my commands, if you don't bow down to false idols, and if you show justice to your neighbours. Like Adam, Israel failed over and over again throughout the Old Testament. As a result, they were expelled or exiled from the land. And yet God pursued them continually in the Old Testament. He saved them from slavery. He delivered them through the Exodus and he was faithful to his covenant, even though his people were constantly unfaithful to him. The question is why? And I think the answer is this, because the promises of God and the mission of God was to come through Israel and they did perfectly in the person of Jesus. Jesus is true Israel. Unlike the nation of Israel, he was completely obedient to his father's commands. He was the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In the Old Testament, Israel, the nation, was referred to as the Son of God. In the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. In the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as the vine. But in the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Remain in me and I will remain in you. In the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as the light of the world. But in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the light of the world, and so are we in Jesus. Through his perfect obedience, I believe that Jesus inherited all the promises of God made to Abram. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Galatians 3.26, it says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptised into Christ Jesus, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed 
and you are heirs according to the promise. And so if Jesus is true Israel, have the promises made to Israel, starting with Abram in Genesis chapter 12, been inherited by Jesus? I believe the answer is yes. So what were the promises? Well, first of all, he said, I will make your name great. This is what he said to the nation of Israel. Listen to what they say about Jesus in Philippians 2. It says, therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What's another promise? You'll be a blessing to all people on earth. Well, we know from the New Testament, talking about Jesus, that every person who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Let me tell you, there is no greater blessing than that. And it's available to all people on earth through Jesus. Now, what about the land? This is the most controversial one. This little bit of land over in the Middle East that people keep fighting over. Israel is the most contested piece of real estate on all the earth. Its history is littered with wars and killing and strife and conflict over this one piece of land. So what about the promises that they'd inherit the land? Well, I believe that the land has been inherited by Christ through his obedience. He dwells safely in the land because he has been perfectly obedient. Now, some people say that the land has been spiritualized in Christ. I don't believe that to be true. I believe it's been universalized. In other words, God was never after a land. He was always after the earth. So in Romans 4, it says, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring, Jesus, received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And so it was always meant to start in a land, whether it was Eden or Israel, and it was meant to spread from there all over the earth. And so Adam and Eden was told to multiply and fill what? The earth. In Abram, he was given a land, and he was told to be a blessing to all people where? On earth. And then when we look at Jesus after his resurrection, we get the Great Commission. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Where? Right over the earth. So what's the great promise of God in Revelation? That there will be a new heavens and a new earth. This is what God has always been after. He's been after the earth. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Jesus has inherited the land and the land is all the earth. God wants his glory to fill the earth, not just one particular tiny little place of earth. This time last year, I was actually in Israel. And one of these days last year, I was actually standing at the Wailing Wall, one of the most amazing places in all of Israel, a place where Jewish people go every day and they they rock backwards and forwards and they pray. And and you can go there and you can write down prayers and you can put them in the slot in the wall. And it's, it's really quite an amazing experience. And it's beautiful to be there. And I did that. I wrote a prayer and I, I went and I laid my hands on the wall like everyone else was. And do you know what I felt when I laid my hands on the wall? I felt cold, dead rock. And yet the Jewish people believe that the presence of God dwells there, has always dwelt there, will keep dwelling there. And so I left the wailing wall and I went into the temple and I felt the presence of God, but I didn't feel it in a physical temple. I felt it in me because I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit and so are you. And that's an incredible thing. God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. He dwells in us. And everywhere we go on earth, we carry the presence of God, filling the earth with his glory, being part of this incredible mission that he's always had for humanity. We are co-workers with a great co-mission to represent the character of God and be a blessing everywhere we go, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and what a glorious mission that is that we've been given. 
Well, after that, I'll finish my introduction. <laughs> we come to Romans chapter 11. But it's important that I do that introduction because this is the interpretive grid that I read this passage through. And I think it's entirely consistent with the context and the big story of the rest of Romans and indeed the rest of Scripture. And so we come to Romans 11 and we've got to ask the question, what is Romans 11 all about? Well, I think the answer is that it's primarily guarding against Gentile arrogance. Romans is written to a largely non-Jewish Gentile church and Paul senses that either arrogance has already crept in or it soon might. In the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels and through Paul's writing throughout the New Testament, there has been this constant rebuking of Jewish arrogance. You think you guys are the special people because you have the law and the covenants and the patriarchs, but you've actually missed the Jewish Messiah, the one who enacts all the promises that were given to you in the first place. And the righteousness you're now left with is a self-righteousness, and that always falls short of God's standard. The only way you can truly be righteous before God is by accepting his son, who was the only person in human history who never sinned. When you accept him, the New Testament says you are in Christ, which means that you are forgiven through the work of the cross, but also deemed righteous and holy and blameless before God the Father on account of being found in God the Son. Most of Paul's people had rejected Jesus. However, the Jewish Messiah that so many of the Jews had rejected had now in Paul's time been gladly received by the Gentiles and the tables had been turned. Paul was thrilled that many non-Jewish people had accepted Christ and been saved, but at the same time he was incredibly heartbroken that so many of the Israelite people had rejected him and were now outside the promises of God found in Christ. Concerned that the Gentiles would now show the exact same arrogance that had caused his own people to stumble, he strongly warns them against pride. Pride is the belief that we're better than you, that we deserve God's blessings, that we're the chosen people, that we're standing in the promises of God, that we're on the inside and you're on the outside. And as Christians, we should never have that sort of pride. We should never see ourselves as better than anybody else because we are only saved by God's amazing grace through faith. And even that faith that we exercised was a gift from God in the first place. Gentile arrogance is an issue that has reared its ugly head right throughout history since Paul wrote this letter. We saw it in horrific situations like the Holocaust. We saw it tragically overnight in a synagogue in Pittsburgh when an anti-Semitic terrorist walked into that place of worship yelling, all Jews must die before shooting eight precious people dead. We see it every time the Jews have been persecuted and discriminated against. We see it when Christian men and women blame the Jews for Jesus' crucifixion, even though we know that it was all of our sins that hung him on that cross. We see it when people say that all the Jews have been rejected because many of them denied Jesus. This is Gentile arrogance that Paul warns so strongly against, and we should heed his warning today and pray for the Jewish people as part of our mission field and as people who are absolutely precious to God. Paul makes it clear to the Gentile recipients of this letter that God hasn't rejected all the Jewish people. He has by no means cast off the entire nation. And he says this in verse 1. Did God reject his people? Then he answers it immediately by saying, by no means. And he proves his point by pointing to himself. He says, hello, anybody? Here I am, Paul, the apostle, a Jewish man. If God had rejected all my people, I wouldn't be standing here. You wouldn't be receiving this letter. If God had rejected all these people, then Paul would also be rejected by God, and clearly he wasn't. He says in verse 1, I'm an Israelite myself, 
a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. God made the point in chapter 10 that not all physical Israel are truly spiritual Israel. Within the physical nation, there has always been a remnant, which is a small group of Jewish people who had been chosen by God and were faithful to him by God's grace. And Paul is saying, I am part of that remnant. In fact, right throughout scripture, God has reserved for himself by his grace a remnant of Jewish people who are true Israel. Paul uses the example of Elijah in verse 2. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet in their ancient history who you can read about in the book of Kings. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, you can read about a wicked king called Ahab who had an even worse wife called Jezebel. If you're going to have a daughter, can I suggest that there are nicer names than Jezebel? If you want a rebellious, disobedient kid, call it Jezebel. I hope there's no Jezebels here this morning or I'm in big trouble. Jezebel was opposed to God. He hated, she hated Elijah because he represented God and she tried to hunt Elijah down and have him killed. And by this point in the story, Elijah is absolutely exhausted and frustrated and he's kind of sulking before God. He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are now trying to kill me. And God says, poor Elijah, you are the only one left plus another 7,000 that I've reserved for myself who also haven't bowed their knee to Ahab. To, to the, um, yeah, to Ahab. So there are a whole bunch of people that I have reserved. They haven't bowed their knee to Baal, sorry. I've reserved them as my people. And then he goes on in verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace then it cannot be based on works. If it were based on works, grace would no longer be grace. Paul himself is living proof of God's faithfulness to the promises he made to those who were truly Israel, revealed by faith in Christ and only because of God's grace. Because the truth is, if God treated Israel with true justice, they would have been completely rejected. Paul made this point at the end of chapter 9. He said, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants in a remnant, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. In other words, we would have been completely wiped off the face of the earth because of our unfaithfulness to a holy and faithful God. God has been so faithful, so good, so gracious, so kind to a group of people described at the end of last chapter as a disobedient and obstinate people. In verses 7 to 10 of chapter 11 today, Paul shows that many have hardened hearts. Many of them have eyes that have been darkened and backs that will be bent forever. However, there are some who Paul refers to as the elect who have been saved. He says this in verse 7. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain? No, no, the elect among them did. But the others were hardened. God is faithful to his people and his people are the faithful remnant chosen by grace. Paul goes on to describe who God's people are in all of their fullness. And he does it by using the picture or the analogy of an olive tree. The Old Testament, Israel is often referred to as a tree, and clearly in this illustration, Israel is the olive tree. And he uses the example of grafting. If you're a gardener here, you might know what grafting is, but grafting is basically the, the idea that you have an existing tree, you break off a branch, and then you go to another tree, and you break off a branch of that tree, and you bring it over to the existing tree, and you bind it together where the other branch has been broken off, and over time it binds together and it actually gets all the nap and, and nourishment from the existing tree, and it starts to bear fruit. And so you can have an apple tree that has three different types of apples on it. You can have an apple that has golden delicious Granny Smith and Pink Lady apples. If you're a family with multiple kids like we are, they never like the same apple, do they? 
I want the red ones, I want the green ones, I want the pink ones. Well, here's the answer. Plant an apple tree in your backyard and graft in a whole bunch of apples to it and tell them just to go and help themselves anytime they like. For those strange people that don't like apples, you can even graft different fruits into an apple tree. You could graft a pear into an apple tree and you could have apples and pears growing on the same branches of one tree. It's really quite an amazing process. Paul is teaching here that this tree represents Israel, the chosen people of God. It started as only Jewish people through Abram, as Israel became a great nation. But many of the Jews who were part of the tree, Paul says they have been broken off because of why? Because of disobedience. But to many of the Gentiles, they've now been grafted in by faith. Paul talks in verse 25 of a partial hardening that has occurred within the Jewish people. Clearly, it's not all the Jews because many are still part of the tree and have not been broken off, but some have through disobedience and a lack of faith in Jesus. This partial hardening was characteristic of Israel in the past, of Israel in Paul's time, and certainly still of Israel today. Some people read into this passage that this is talking about a mass return of the Jews to Jesus in the last days. I heard someone recently say that truckloads of Jews are going to come back to the Lord, and I desperately hope that that's true. However, I don't see any evidence of that in this particular passage unless you read it through a predetermined dispensational lens. When Paul quotes a deliverer coming from Zion to take godlessness away from Jacob and to take away their sins, I don't believe it's referring to a future event, but rather has been fulfilled in a past reality when Jesus came and took the sins of the world. Verse 17 tells us that together with the Jews, many Gentiles have become part of the same tree, Israel, by putting their faith in Jesus and as a result receive the exact same nourishment from the tree, take on the same mission of the tree and receive the same promises. Jews and Gentiles now become one as the people of God. This has been incredibly good news for the Gentiles because they were once outside of the promises of God, as we heard last week but have now received them by faith. But Paul gives the Gentiles a stern warning not to be boastful or prideful, but to remember that they have only joined the tree by faith. And this does not in any way mean that they've replaced all the people of Israel or that they are in any way superior. The Gentiles have not replaced Israel. They've been incorporated into them, and the two have become one. And for the Gentile Christians who are Paul's primary audience in this letter, they should remember that they are only receiving this blessing because it was always God's plan to bring salvation through the Jews. Not only that, but God is not finished with all the Jews and there are still many Jews who will come to know Jesus. In fact, right now, more than any other time in human history, there are more Jews coming to Jesus uh, apart from the time of the book of Acts. And that's a wonderful thing, that many people are recognising their Messiah and they're putting their faith in him. Now, through Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, he has this great hope that not only Gentiles will be saved, but his people, the Jews, once they realise the blessing of the Gentiles, they will be aroused to jealousy and they will also put their faith in Jesus and be regrafted into the promises of God. Let's pick it up at verse 11. Paul says, again I ask, did they, the Jews, stumble as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if the rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches." 
If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive tree, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root. The root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they, the Jews, do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced the hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. This is a description in this passage that is undeniably talking about Israel. It's clearly talking about both Jews and Gentiles, the Jews in the tree, the Gentiles that have been grafted in. Some people argue against that because they rightly point out that the term Israel has been used 11 times in Romans prior to this point to describe national Israel. And if that's the case, why would Paul now change to be referring to spiritual Israel or the elect when he talks about all Israel being saved? However, I think it actually, in the context, makes complete sense. And I also think the word all makes a difference. He's been talking about an olive tree. Some people have been cut out because of disobedience. Some have been grafted in by faith. It's the same tree. It's the same Israel. The root is Jewish, built on the apostles and prophets, but many of the branches are Gentiles, grafted in by the chief cornerstone, Christ, and the Jews, who are also part of true Israel, remain in the tree by the same means, and that's faith in Jesus. You cannot be saved apart from putting your faith in Christ. He is the only way to be saved. Immediately flowing from that illustration... These are the words. He says, and in this way, this tree, all Israel will be saved. That makes complete sense. These people are the people of God, Jew and Gentile, grafted together as one, not by nationality, but included by faith. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, in some ways, what you believe about Jesus' return and the nation of Israel doesn't really matter. I remember when I was a 15-year-old, I went to my pastor at the time and I started looking into you know, pre-mill and A-mill and post-mill and every other mill you can think of. And I said to him, what are you? Are you pre-mill, post-mill, A-mill? And he said, well, I'm actually pan-mill. And I looked at him and I thought, oh, I haven't heard that one before. I said, what? what's pan-mill? And he said, I think that it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> and there's a lot of truth to that, you know. In a lot of ways, it'll all pan out in the end. And as much as we try and guess and try and understand what Scripture says... Um, it doesn't really matter which one of those you hold to. However, I do think there are three reasons that I can think of that are really important in regards to what we believe about Israel, and I want to finish with these three things very briefly. The first thing, I think our understanding of Israel actually affects our hope. For me, being a Christian loses some of its excitement and some of its hope if only some of the promises of God are for us. Through a dispensational lens, you often focus your hope on Israel. But if there are some promises for the Jews and some promises for the Christians, it still feels like they're not one humanity but two. It feels like we're reconstructing the dividing wall that Jesus came to abolish. But if you read it through a Christological lens, 
You focus your hope on Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the promises. I take great hope in the truth of Galatians that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Being in him gives me great confidence that I, as a Gentile Christian, putting my faith in Jesus, will inherit all the promises that he has given his people. The second thing I think it affects is our sense of justice. And this is where it might get a little bit controversial, but I've got to say I cringe when I meet Christians who have a blind, unconditional loyalty to the current state of Israel. And every time there's a conflict, they post on Facebook, I stand with Israel. Now, I'm not going to profess to be an expert on highly complex political issues in the Middle East, and I wouldn't for a second defend the atrocities committed by some Palestinians and by neighbours of Israel. I also think that we should love Jewish people passionately, stand against any hint of anti-Semitism, and be sensitive to the atrocities that have occurred to them throughout their history. However, I can guarantee that Israel is not entirely innocent in the Middle East conflict. Being in Israel last year, I saw with my own eyes the appalling conditions that many Palestinians endure just on the other side of the wall or the other side of the checkpoint, where they've been cut out of things like running water. I particularly pray for Palestinian Christians who live in Muslim, oppressive, majority strongholds and yet are also oppressed by people inside the wall. So when we blindly stand with Israel no matter what, there is every chance we may at times stand for things that God doesn't. I think it's important to remember God didn't always stand with Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, he exiled them, rebuked them, raised up people against them and punished them when they disobeyed him and failed to show justice to the neighbours around them. This is what the minor prophets are all about. You might say, yeah, but you, Israel's neighbours today, they're trying to wipe them out. They're, they're evil, they're wicked, and some of them are. There's no doubt about that, but no more wicked than the nations in the Old Testament. That God said, I still want you to show justice to them. Someone said to me recently, so do you stand with the nation of Israel? And I said, no. They said, so do you stand with Palestine? I said, no. And they said, well, who do you stand with? And I said, I stand with God's heart. And I think Israel, like every nation on earth, should be held accountable for their actions, particularly when they act in ways that are unjust and contrary to God's heart. The third thing is that it affects our sense of mission. If we think that God is primarily after the land of Israel, we can run the risk of looking to Israel and not looking to Jesus, looking to Israel and not looking to our next-door neighbours. If you believe God is after the earth, however, then all of a sudden it ignites a real passion for local mission because God is after Israel, but he's also after officer. And I don't think the church is an interruption to God's plan. I believe we've been incorporated into plan A that God had from the start, that we would have a universal mission to all people. I don't think Jesus would die for an interruption. We are the bride of Christ. We are joining God on mission to reach the earth. We have a co-mission, a co-workers with God to bless this community and to declare the good news of the gospel, and that's incredibly exciting. I hope and pray that each of us will keep wrestling with Scripture to decide what you believe about predestination and about Israel. I pray that none of us will fall for the trap of everybody arguing with somebody but nobody doing what anybody can do and what everybody is meant to do, and that's to share Jesus with the world. I also pray that you will debate but not divide and that you'll embrace the mission of God for the gospel to be taken to all the earth by his people for his glory. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info@follow.church. And one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, 
www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.